Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and today I'm joined by Taiming Chung, Director of the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, and Professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at University of California, San Diego, and Jerome Grunewangelau, Head of Science and Technology and Innovation at Merix. We're meeting at the sidelines of the Conference on Chinese National Innovation and Techno-Industrial Ecosystems, which was held on September 5th and 6th, 2023 at Merix in Berlin. Jerome, Professor Chung, welcome to the podcast. The US is in the process of cutting China off from key technologies. This is posing a risk to China's ability to innovate and progress technologically. What is China doing to reduce this risk, Professor Chung? That's a great question. Um, I mean, you can see that China's efforts at innovation, and especially high-end innovation, has been progressing quite rapidly. And this has been going on for quite some time. But in the last, sort of, I would say, since the mid-2010s, this geostrategic competition with the US, what it's called the great power competition, has really picked up. And the technology realm is where much of this sort of like effort by the US to constrain China's technological rise is taking place. So China has come up with a whole range of issues. In, in fact, dealing with what the Chinese call the threat of, strang of technological strangulation is front and center of their efforts to, um, to reorganize the science and technology system, to rethink about how they engage in economic development and how that links in with national security. So this is sort of, in many ways, an existential threat both to China's rise and China's national security and China's economic development. So the Chinese have gotten a whole range of approaches to deal with this, from self-reliance, um, from changing their economic system, um, from their international diplomacy. So it's a full-spread, comprehensive efforts at dealing with this technological um, cutoff, um, which is gaining ground in the U.S., and it's escalating. As a follow-up question, how is China progressing on this? So there's like this setup of a whole range of things that China is doing to, to compensate there. How is this going? Is it, is it going well? Is it still very complicated for China? What is your assessment of that? Um, so the Chinese authorities, there's an issue of how much they are reacting And how much are they sort of taking the lead in making these types of responses? Um, initially, when this great power competition sort of really took off in the mid 2010s, there was, there was a sense that the Chinese sort of were reacting. They didn't quite know um, what the threat was. And they really came to see this in what people call this, this, the Sputnik moment, which was when the U.S. began to impose sanctions on some of their key um, technology companies. This was ZTE and then Huawei um, in 2018. And so as part of that reaction, like, um, they began to stockpile on sort of like, um, key commodities like semiconductors, etc., And those are the ad hoc responses. But then the authorities, led by 
Xi Jinping at the top said, we need to restructure the whole of the system. So I come. So there's focus on self-reliance at the structural, at the macro level, rather than just at the micro levels. And so we see sort of new policies and strategies, such as this sort of the, the do circulation strategy that, that emphasizes the importance of the domestic market. And we see new science and technology plans, like the 14th five-year plan or the 15-year medium and long-term science and technology plans that both come out in 2021. We see sort of new organizations being set up. So it's taken a while, but we see much more of a long-term, organized, um, structural and comprehensive approach. But this is requires a lot of resources. And, it, and this is sort of like um, in trying to change this massive ship of the science and technology system, you can't do it overnight. So it's like changing the the course of the ship takes a long time. But this is a, a top priority. It's increasingly urgent because sort of like the effort that the US is doing at decoupling or de-risking, whatever you call it, I mean, that's also gaining steam. So. You just mentioned that setting up organizations is also one of the responses. And in April this year, in April of 2023, China established the Central Science and Technology Commission. Now, is this a significant development? And, and if so, why? So we have very little information. The setting up of this Central Science and Technology Commission, when it was announced, there was just a, a couple of paragraphs explaining what it was about. But I've been looking at these types of party structures. And um, my sense is, especially from a historical perspective, is that there's been, at times of major sort of um, crisis on China's science and technology system itself, the Chinese have a well-established and a trusted playbook that, that they refer to because they've been in this experience where there's the sort of this technology war and the threat of being cut off by other countries they've been relying upon. They've been doing this about like three times. So this happened in at the beginning of the 1960s with the Sino-Soviet split. This happened in 1989 with the Tiananmen Square crackdown. And then it's, um, this also happened um, at the end of the 1990s with the Belgrade embassy bombing. And um, after each of these times, China established sort of like um, a top-down organization to mobilize and centralize their sort of science and technology responses. And these various events were focused on strategic science and technology, how you mobilize the country. And the one sort of um, case that I use as sort of the most similar is in 1962 when the Chinese Communist Party established the Central Special Committee. And this was a very, very similar organization that we can see where it's at the very top, it's a party organization, and the focus is on mobilizing resources across the Chinese system to develop strategic capabilities. And the announcement in April had a lot of these echoes that, that, that I see. So in many ways, to me, um, this is a, a very, very significant event. Um, the, as much as we know is that um, the, the top leader, although it's not being 
um, confirm is Xi Jinping. But they, and this is really important, is that the the permanent office responsible for the day-to-day affairs is the Ministry of Science and Technology. And um, when you look at other party commissions, there's no other party commission that has a general office, which is a ministry. So this is like the ability to mobilize and to engage in really powerful, prominent science and technology programs is this is what it's set up to do. Could you remind us quickly how the 1962 developments in the end turned out? Was was that organization successful in what it was aiming to do? So so this 1962 commission, this the, the Central Special Committee, it became quite successful. Um, three years after it was set up, China explodes its first atomic bomb. Then it develops these long-range ballistic missiles. It sends satellites into space on their own sort of rocket launchers. It builds its own sort of nuclear power stations. So in terms of self-reliance, sort of indigenous innovation, development of strategic capabilities, it's become almost a mythology in the Chinese consciousness that um, this is what they call the two bombs and one satellite ideal, the Liandang Yixing. And Chinese leaders from Mao Zedong at that time to Xi Jinping today, they always talk about, we did it with the two bombs and one satellite, and this is the way that we're going to do it going forwards itself. So it's become of mythical proportions that they were so successful. Can you link that to this notion of a whole of nation system? Back in the early 60s. So this was the original version of the whole of nation, the Jugoti Jir. Um, and so this was how do you mobilize the whole of your sort of country to focus on these critical strategic systems. So back in the early 60s, the motto was because China was a century plan economy, this was sort of a vertically integrated motto where you for the nuclear weapons, you have the, the nuclear weapons apparatus. For the missiles, you have the missile system, so you have all these systems. We fast forward to the new Central Science and Technology Commission. They say that's where we look for the ideas, but instead of a vertically integrated model, they're now looking more at a horizontally integrated model. And, and because um, the O system was in the central plan, now they're trying to say, well, we still, the, the state-owned enterprises are very important, but how do we integrate the private sector that we didn't have before? So the new style whole of nation model, it's like um, the normative principles are there, but they're adapting it because of the change of the Chinese state um, system and economy. The outcome of the 1962 commission of of, uh, the two bombs leads nicely into my next question, which is that many decisions by President Xi Jinping seem to be focused on increasing national security. And previously, you have argued that an element of militarization is also added into this national security thinking. Could you elaborate on, on that? So because of this great power competition that's been taking place and the importance of self-reliance, of resilience. What I've seen in terms of of the development of the science and technology system, this focus on these strategic capabilities, has been the focus on what I call sort of economic securitization. 
and security, economic securitization is means to make sort of um, your economy and your science and technology and innovation systems much more resilient and much more independent from reliance on, on foreign sources. But in the last year or so, there's been increasing concerns, especially on, on the Chinese side, because of the Ukraine war, the worries over um, Taiwan, and the increasing sort of like uh, military responses that China's seen from the US, like AUKUS, etc., that there's a need for acceleration in the military buildup. And so we've seen signs, especially with new, bigger, and better um, approaches to thinking on military civil fusion, which is how you integrate the civilian and defense portions of the economy, to one where you're thinking about preparing for potential war. And militarization is what you do about building in case you have to go to war. It doesn't mean you're going to go to war, but it's like, um, as the Ukraine um, war has shown, you need to sort of really sort of change how your economy, you need to have better forms of mobilization, you need to make sure the national infrastructure, um, whether it's like um, transportation or communications, is hardened and there's much more of a closer, seamless integration between the military and the, and the civilian um, systems. Those are all parts of what I see as militarization. And we're beginning to see some of that taking place in China. It's by no means that they are fully on board on that, but we are beginning to see the creep from not just securitization to the early stages of more of a militarized approach to their development. You mentioned this uh, military-civil fusion programs, and in this context, does that mean that scientific cooperation also has always now a, a military side effect to it? Is that then uh, scientific cooperation without that still possible or not? The security and military dimensions of science and technology, um, there are two sides of a coin, but they don't overlap that much. In China, this notion sort of like um, of sort of a dual use economy where it's civil military are very closely integrated. That's sort of been an aspiration from the Chinese authorities, but the history of the development of the Chinese national innovation system has primarily been that um, it's um, they've been very compartmentalized, and I mean, and this is we've seen this sort of throughout the, the nature of the development of the military in China. The the, the military, whether it's um, the, the the People's Liberation Army or the defense industry or the science and technology system, they're very secretive and they tend to be sort of separated from the rest of the national economy. There, there's portions that are more closely integrated, but overall that's the nature itself. And so what we see, um, especially the last sort of 30, 40 years, is that um, as the defense portion of the science and technology system have, has evolved, it's gone on its own track. The civilian national science and technology system has gone on its own track, and that part has been much more globally engaged itself. And so these parallel tracks is sort of like what's been the general sort of um, nature of the science and technology landscape. But of course, now under Xi Jinping, there's these efforts to integrate them more. 
But the defense science and technology or the dual use science and technology portions of the Chinese science and technology, it tends to be much smaller. I mean, it's like, um, if you look, we're probably talking about no more than 10% of the size of the overall national science and technology system. So the national, the civilian side is so much more larger than the defense side. But um, because of all these sort of um, sort of great power tensions and this worry about um, the potential for war, that may grow more now as we go forwards. Talking of the potential for war, then uh, my last and, and, and probably slightly uh, dis dividing question would be, do you think that an armed conflict with China is on the horizon? And, and if so, is it inevitable? Is it, is it all leading in that direction? So there's a lot of debate about this. And um, in the US, there's like um, some schools of thinking. Um, there's this sort of uh, well-known book called the, the, the Fluidities Trap, written by a Harvard professor, um, Graham Allison, who's like, who talks about its... Um, The nature of the system makes war between the U.S. and China inevitable because it's about sort of a hegemon being challenged by the number two. And the reason why it's inevitable is because it's to do with the structure of the international system. Um, I don't buy into that. I think um, countries have a lot of agency on their side. And um, if you thought about the nature of that international system, um, the, the Soviet Union and the U.S. would have gone to war a long time ago and they didn't do that and to me it's uh, i mean what is more important uh, and what we see today is I, mean, i think the chances of going to war is pretty limited it's increased compared to five years ago but it's still got a, a very long way to go but it's it's the threat of war or it's like um proxy conflicts that happen on the sidelines or what some people call sort of hybrid war like we have The technology war, we have grey zone confrontations like on the cyber side, etc. But both Washington and Beijing sees that if you go to war, everyone loses itself. So I think the dangers of war are very, very high. And um, I think we have very rational um, leaderships on both sides that right now don't see that they should go to war. And the Ukraine war has made that even more abundant. The big question is, does China think that red lines are being crossed over Taiwan or over other issues? Then when then it becomes a, a political decision to do that. And that is sort of like very different from what we see in terms of military buildups or science and technology buildups. Those are preparing for the possibility of war, but to actually go to war requires a top-level political decision that I don't think both sides are even close to at that point yet. Um, in the current climate and without uh, throwing overboard um, kind of policies that are set out or the course that both countries are generally on, uh, the US and, and China, what are steps that can be taken to kind of pull us a bit away from, from the brink of war, that reduce the likelihood of a war? And if I may add to that, uh, as we are in, in Europe, what could be the role of the European Union in, in that regard as well? I mean, so... The main worries about going to war today is accidental 
competition because of sort of collisions between sort of warships and aircraft. And we've seen a lot of that. So like um, sort of very close encounters between sort of um, Chinese warships and American and others. So sort of confidence building measures sort of and, and crisis management um, sort of mechanisms that um, sort of like the, the two militaries are, should be able to talk to each other. Those kinds of things um, are really, really important. But those types of dialogues, of engagements have been basically frozen for the last um, couple of years. So we need to get back onto track because we are seeing increasingly that um, the Indo-Pacific is becoming increasingly militarized, where we see the Chinese and the US militaries, as well as even um, European countries, the British and the French, they're also going into those areas. And so they get, they're operating at very, very sort of like close to each other. So we have to deal with those issues. I mean, in the end, it's, um, I mean, countries have to talk to each other. They may not like it. It's politically, domestically sort of unpopular, but there is a responsibility. And the more they have this, and this is what happened during, during the Cold War, where at the tenses of moments, the two countries knew what the other side was, and that helped to reduce tensions. And so that we need to build that. And that has sort of been neglected because of the domestic political environments, both in China, in the US, and other countries. You've presented uh, the attack war as maybe a, potentially a proxy area for both sides to test their relative strength that almost automatically leads to an understanding of scientific collaboration, mainly in terms of yes, scientific diplomacy. It's limited to a few areas that open a channel to engage and at least understand where the other side is, rather than as kind of a full-fledged uh, area of collaboration and open competition. I think that spells a very different paradigm than what is currently the norm in Europe still, where we see ourselves as an open scientific uh, society and part of a global community. Do you agree with that typification? Is kind of scientific diplomacy the the minimum, because that's the bare minimum of engagement? Is that what we're headed for? Um, I think um, that's one area, um, and that's an important area that we have to build on. But when you look at sort of like, so I often sort of compare it in terms of science and technology and sort of, and the technology war and the Cold War with where the US and China is today compared with the Soviet Union and the US. During the US-Soviet sort of Cold War in the 20th century, we didn't have many decades of globalization. We didn't have sort of these global companies and we didn't have sort of like the types of back and forth of link of economic and social linkages, etc. And we have all that today. The science diplomacy, which is the limit that we had in, in doing the Cold War, I mean, it's like, um, that's great, but there's so much more that is taking place. The issue I think is that, um, in both Washington and Beijing and in Europe today is like, I mean, we still don't know what we can do and what we can't do in terms of science and technology. And one of that is because we don't know what is national security and what is not national security. So like um, the definitions of national security in science and technology keeps expanding. The things that you could do a few years ago, you can't do now because Mostly, it's not because of the, of the subjects you're doing. It's because of the political definition 
of national security. And I think that domestically, until countries domestically work out what can be done and what can't be done in terms of national security and ring-fence that, once we have that, then there's lots of things that we can do. And I suspect that um, there's a lot of things that um, have nothing to do with national security or do use. I mean, it's like TikTok. That's not national security, but it has, it seems to be that. It's like, I mean, once we can work out domestically what that matters, that leaves a whole range of areas that we can work on. The, the problem is in defining national security is that it's been defined by governments. It's defined by the national security community. And this is the role for academics, for the science and technology folks, to be able to engage in that debate and say, that's no way that's national security, or that is national security, and we've got to work that. So we need a much more lively and robust debates, particularly from sort of the science and technology communities, to help inform what is right now a much more politicized as they come through. And it's easy, we see in Washington DEC that it's everyone says it's national security and, um, and you don't lose votes if you sort of like stick your head at that. Well, that's not national security. That doesn't help you win votes. Yeah, with this energetic call to action, I'd like to, to end the podcast. Thank you very much for your time and insight, Professor Chung. Um, Jerome, see you back here one other day. Okay. Thank you for having me. Dear listener, you can find out more on the conference on Chinese national innovation and techno-industrial ecosystems on our website. A link will be in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.